One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello and thanks for downloading NewsHour Extra. This edition was first broadcast at 8 GMT on Friday, 31st of July. The Independent Republic of Kurdistan. It's an aspiration, more perhaps a distant dream, for many of the 40 million Kurds living in the Middle East. But in these turbulent times across Iraq, Syria, Turkey and Iran, the countries where the vast majority of those Kurds live, is that objective of an independent Kurdish state drawing any nearer? Kurdish Peshmerga fighters are playing an essential role in the fight against Islamic State militants in Syria and Iraq. They have backing from the United States to fight the good fight. They're putting territory into Kurdish hands. Business between Turkey and Kurdish northern Iraq has been booming. Access to oil fields brings the promise of riches. And yet... Hostilities have resumed between the Kurdish separatists of the PKK in southeastern Turkey and the Ankara government. America is wedded to holding Iraq together as a single state. Syria's fate, well, that remains anyone's guess. And besides, how united are the Kurds themselves in this ultimate goal? Well, with us, a panel to reflect the complexities and the international concerns of the Kurdish question. We'll be talking to a former member of the Kurdish government in northern Iraq, to leading experts on the Turkish and Washington perspectives, as well as one of the foremost commentators on Middle East affairs. First, though, Gunnar Yildiz, the BBC's leading analyst on the Kurdish community, is with me here in the studio. Um, Gunnar, I hope to bring some clarity to proceedings. If I just start with this maze of acronyms, the PKK, the KDP, YPG, PYD, you know well, PUK, HB, I could go on and on. Give us some simplicity and clarity. Is there a single Kurdish identity, do you think? Well, David, what unites them is not necessarily the, the language, because although it's uh, in some way mutually understandable, Kurds of Iraq speak a different dialect, Kurds of Turkey speak a different dialect, Kurds have divided between four or five countries, so it's not necessarily the politics. Uh, but what unites all Kurds is a sense of belonging, sense of a distant history, and sense of persecution, which is in the forms of massacres, discrimination in almost all of these countries. And uh, especially recently, there is an added urgency uh, uh, to the identity of Kurdishness with Kurds in the front line of the fight against IS. Right, so, so a mixture of coherence and inevitably some disparity as well, which I suppose is normal enough. Well, let, let's just get a word from someone who has served within uh, the Kurdistan regional government of northern Iraq because Dalawa Ala al-Din is with us on the programme. Uh, Dalawa, thanks for joining us. I just wonder if you would share that characterization that uh, Gune has given us. I think it was uh, fairly accurate. Um, there is the unity on sentimental level, and that is national identity, uh, sharing common flags, anthem, history, culture, heritage, and so on. But the thing that really passionately bring them together is this more recent history of uh, being oppressed by um, different regimes and um, having so much in common. And, of course, geography as well as uh, socio-economics have always uh, brought them together, but also divided them. Yes, interesting. When you mentioned geography there, if we were to talk about independence, about an independent state, now never mind the likelihood of that happening for a moment, but what would be the geographical area that you'd be thinking about? Well, realistically, I believe that each uh, separate, say, part of Kurdistan uh, will have its own independence separately. The chance or the 
uh, prospect of uh, a unified, uh, grander Kurdistan is probably not going to happen. This is my personal view, and uh, the evidence is really looking at the Arab countries a hundred years ago when they were divided by a ruler by uh, you know arbitrarily. Uh, yet they, their interests diverged and their evolution happened in a way that were bringing them together, accepting each other's rule is impossible. And now in Kurdistan, we see more or less the same picture. So as time went by, um, they became so fragmented. Now to think about uniting them just on the basis of identity and nationality and these sentimental values is really going to be far-fetched in politics and in reality. The real politique will dominate at the end. Right, but interesting, you mentioned the sort of sense of cultural identity, and I think it's fair to say we've got some very good examples to, to offer up here. The Kurdish story, really, just as much as the rise of ISIS in recent times, it sparked a heightened sense, it seems, of that Kurdish identity, not just in the region, around the world. In fact, we've got an example for you. Serhado is a young rapper. He grew up in Sweden after his Kurdish parents fled there from Turkey. But he has said that he's always felt, above all, Kurdish. And now he's moved to the very country his parents left. We spoke to him from his recording studio in Diyarbakir in southeastern Turkey. A lot of Swedish friends, they were always telling me, you're born in Sweden, so you're Swedish. But you never felt Swedish because of how you looked and how you felt like you spoke Kurdish at home and you had your your Kurdish cultures. We never felt Swedish. And still people can tell me, like, uh, you're Swedish, you're born in Sweden. But I always tell them, I say, if a sheep is born in a stable, is it a horse or is it still a sheep? So for me, I've always, like, since I can remember, I've always said that I'm Kurdish. It's a feeling, it's, it's everything. It's the music, it's the language, it's the politics. I think it's, it's everything. Like You take from all the parts and that becomes you. There's a lot of Kurdish people that don't even speak Kurdish, but if you ask them, they're like the most Kurds they can be. My music is political. When I started with rap music, I was rapping in Swedish and talking about the problems that we had in the segregated areas in Stockholm. But then, like, my music is a mirror of, of myself. So when I'm in search of myself, of course, these things, you can hear it in the, in the lyrics of every song. I have a track called As Kurdistanim. It's, it says, I am Kurdistan. It was really hard for me to make a song about Kurdistan. I always wanted to do it. And then there's a Kurdish marcher called Sarhad, Shahid Sarhad. He did this song like 15 years ago. He was also a, a guerrilla fighter. Besides, he was a singer. When I listened to Shahid Sarhad, I could feel, like, I could feel that. Like, he could bring me back to Kurdistan. So, to do this song, I've used his voice. And then when I make a rap track from this, it's not only the cultural, it's also the, the political uh, touch to it. That's why I think people love it so much.
I have a lot of songs that like talks about these problems. I got arrested two times just because of my music. This is what what I can give, you know? That's why people like it as well because they feel the same thing, but they need someone to, to speak out for them, you know? And I don't see this as a job. I see this as as a I just have to, you know? There is a shared identity. I mean, we have our main base culture things, but at the same time there's there's not a unity between like amongst Kurds. It's not about the flag and it's not about the language like many people think. And that's why I'm glad to live in this moment today because we're writing history. When I was young, I remember everybody made fun of me. They said, where's your country? Where's your country? You don't have a country. But today I'm happy that I don't have a country because I always was against national states. And today we can make a new system in Kurdistan. Well, that's Sahado, a Swedish-Kurdish rapper there, talking about his feelings about Kurdish identity. And it's certainly not all about nationalism, is it? Uh, let me introduce you now to our other key guest today, because Eliza Marcus joins us from our Washington studio. Eliza is the author of Blood and Belief, drawing on her close reporting over many years on the Kurdish separatist PKK group in southeastern Turkey. Dr Esra Ozyorek is the Associate Professor in Contemporary Turkish Studies at the London School of Economics and is sitting opposite me here in the studio. Uh, and Patrick Coburn is an international commentator for the Independent Newspaper, having covered the Middle East for the past 35 years. And Patrick, I think you're just back from northern Syria and northern Iraq. Do, can, can I ask you, do you get a sense of a Kurdish feeling that, that this is their moment? Well, yes, but I think it's not all optimistic. The great development recently has been the 2.2 million Kurds, 10% of the Syrian population, who've really created their own de facto state in northeast Syria. But, you know, there's a long 600-mile common frontier in Iraq with Islamic State. Kurds have been driven out of uh, villages and have been massacred. So I think there's a sense that it may be their moment, but it's also a very dangerous moment. Right, but does that sense of, you know, you, you mentioned death and struggle, but also achievement there, does that not serve to bring Kurds together, to see each other's plight in, in each country? Oh, yeah, it's always true of the Kurds that one thing that brings them together is extreme oppression. I mean, remember Saddam Hussein massacred 180,000 Kurds in 88-89. The Turks uh, cleared 3,000 Kurdish villages, just uh, eradicated them. And in Syria, there's something called the Arab Belt, which was an attempt by the Ba'athist government in the past to create a sort of Arab cordon sanitaire along the border. So part of Kurdish identity is the oppression and which they've suffered from states in the region who on the one hand say there's no such thing as Kurds but then treat the uh, Kurds as a separate and dangerous minority whom they uh, press. Well, I, I want to turn to Eliza Marcus now, because, Eliza, from uh, your study of and work al alongside many um, PKK elements, I, I just wonder, it, does the PKK look beyond its own region, really, in terms of identity? 
Well, certainly the PKK, as was mentioned earlier, was started as a pan-Kurdish organization that uh, thought they would first liberate uh, the Kurdish region of Turkey and then move and liberate the areas in Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Over time, what's happened is that the PKK has given that up and focused its attention on Turkey. But over the past decade or so, PKK affiliates inside Syria, known as the YPG, has have had the opportunity to carve out a de facto state, as Patrick mentioned, for the Kurds there. And this has been very important for the PKK, and they've, they've put a lot of their attention and efforts to help the Kurds in Syria. At the same time, they've worked, they've sent fighters uh, to fight alongside the Iraqi Kurdish Peshmerga against ISIS. So they've put a lot of effort militarily to back other Kurdish groups. But in terms of their own interests, they remain focused politically on establishing some sort of self-rule for Kurds inside Turkey. And let's just get a, a sense, um, Ezra Ozurek, from the slightly the other side of the fence, if you will, the way in which Kurds in the region are perceived. I mean, to Ankara, does it... I mean, I get a sense that recent uh, developments point us in the direction of the answer here, but does it look at the PKK as the Kurdish situation within the country as the Kurds that they have to deal with it, or they see a bigger picture now? Yeah, the story of Kurds in Turkey is long. Until very recently, there was complete denial of Turks, uh, Kurds. Sorry, when I was um, growing up in the 1980s, the official position was still to call them mountain Turks. The idea was that, oh, they speak a little bit different because they have been cut off on the mountains and that is how their language evolved to something else. Definitely with the help of the um, PKK and also with the democratic move that AKP brought to Turkey in 2000s, Kurds could be recognized as a reality, at least the word could be said. It has been a huge change for about um, a decade. The peace process has, has started, and now it looks in the last several months, things are turning back. Now, again, there is this discourse that, oh, PKK, they are um, horrible terrorists, they are baby killers, all Kurds are against the Turkish state. But it's, it's, it's funny, it does seem perverse to a lot of people that this is happening now, the very time that Turkey is highlighting threats to its own territory from IS, and we know that the Kurdish Peshmerga are fighting IS, and yet reopening old wounds seems to be the move. Why has that happened? Most analysts concur that it has a lot to do with domestic politics. Erdogan, when he first came to power, he really had this pan-Islamic view, which then found space both for Turks and Kurds. So he said nationalism doesn't exist in um, Islamic politics. And then in 2013, Abdullah Öcalan suggested that a peace process starts. Leader of the PKK. Leader of yep. the PKK in jail in, um, in Turkey. And a peace process started. So it looked like it was going well. And at one point, it stopped. And many analysts concur that it stopped at a moment when Erdogan realized that this is not bringing votes to his party anymore. Eliza, let me ask you what you think that means then for the PKK, in fact, and, and for, for Kurdish hopes within, within southeastern Turkey. Well, it's been a real problem, the, the breakdown of the ceasefire over the past 10 days and uh, Turkish attacks on PKK bases in northern Iraq, mass arrests of Kurdish activists inside Turkey. This has, has led to a huge um, disbelief, a sense that uh, the Turkish government can't be trusted. 
But surely they they must have had that belief for a long time. You know, it's not a well, game of trust yet, is it? Well, they had the belief, but as long as there was peace and as long as there was continued negotiations between uh, visits between Kurdish politicians and the jailed PKK leader, they could believe that things were moving. The peace allowed both Turks and Kurds to focus on other things and for Kurds certainly to build up their local institutions inside southeast Turkey and for the PKK to focus its fight against ISIS in Syria and in northern Iraq. So what this does is it really endangers not just, obviously, the peace process, but it also endangers um, the ability of the PKK to continue to focus attention through its affiliate in Syria, especially against ISIS. Right. Gune, you wanted to jump in yeah, there. Uh, you mentioned trust, uh, David. It's uh, clearly the most important currency in uh, bringing a solution to to an ethnic problem. And bringing solution to ethnic problems are, are always difficult. But there are extra complicating factors when it comes to, to the Kurdish issue. Because the fact that we have uh, described Kurdish geography as spanning across different countries. So one of the individual states has to deal with its own Kurdish problem. They have to also take into consideration uh, the situation in other countries countries. Right. Patrick Coburn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was yeah, just right. going to ask you, actually, I wonder whether the, the airstrikes in particular directed at, at um, Kurdish forces. I mean, at the time it happens, it seems to hugely complicate the story. For you, you follow this point by point by point, short term and long term. Is it actually simplifying the picture in a way? We're beginning to see quite clearly, for a Kurdish perspective, at least, what's going to happen in the future. No, I don't think so. I think it makes a messy situation even messier. The Kurds have got stronger in two very different ways. One, because of uh, the Syrian civil war, they've been able to set up a sort of de facto autonomous or independent state with armed forces in northeast Syria. That sort of changes things for the Turkish state, but suddenly you have this quasi-state which is basically dominated by the Syrian branch of the PKK. Inside Turkey, you had the elections, general election in June, in which the what is effectively the Kurdish party, the uh, HDP, which has links but is different from the PKK, won 13% of the vote. And it was this vote which deprived Erdogan of his parliamentary majority. So his own power was threatened in two ways. So in one sense, the Kurds have become more influential, but it, that has also provoked a very uh, serious reaction from the uh, Turkish state. Yeah, and, and that, Dlawa al-Din, that in a nutshell is your problem, isn't it? And perhaps always has been, maybe always will be. You build up influence, then there are too many people who are ready to pull it down again. Well, this has always been the case. So one has to allow for this and manage it. Um, I have to say that we shouldn't be thinking about the peace process in past tense. This peace process has been protracted, has been uh, long, but uh, it will suffer setbacks, but it has to come back on course. Mr. Erdogan, as well as the AK Party, have invested heavily in this peace process and they championed it and without them it wouldn't have started but PKK has also invested heavily in this peace process and you've got uh, mayors pro-PKK everywhere ruling and having budgets to spend and so on and so forth so the advancement of this process has really gone beyond the point of completely being wrecked this is a very high risk strategy yet another high risk strategy by Mr. Erdogan and this time it may not pay off but certainly he has taken a lot of the campaign that Salahattin Demirtas and Propikek HDP is taking it very personally because they denied him the presidential system. So essentially we are living at a time when 
uh, the, the wrong strategy adopted for the wrong reasons. And our biggest surprise is that our American, European uh, allies are actually tolerating that and going along with it. Otherwise, this is damaging for Turkey, for democratization, damaging for the Kurds, damaging for population, and more importantly, splits the anti-ISIS uh, wall. Well, you, you draw up the question of the international perspective there, which is uh, absolutely the, the area we want to explore in the second half of the programme. Uh, Patrick Coburn's very yeah. keen to make a quick point here, which is fine. Yeah, Go sure, ahead, yeah. Patrick. I, mean, I think that's a bit uh, naive. I mean, Erdogan wants to uh, keep power. The target in this may not be the PKK, but in fact the, the Kurdish constitutionalists, the HDP, because they won 13% of the vote. And it's not just a question of uh, them uh, losing an election. It's a question of do their leaders start being sent to jail again, as we had in the 1990s. As you make oh. that remark, and as we broadcast this programme, we're getting news coming out of Istanbul to say that Turkish prosecutors have opened an investigation uh, against um, the leader of the HDP, of the People's Democratic Party, oh. Selahattin Demirta. So perhaps you would see that as proof of your pudding. No, absolutely. So it's turning into a general offensive against any representation of the Kurds. And this, of course, will provoke a reaction among some of the PKK or splinter groups. So I think that Erdogan is building up for what in Britain we used to call a khaki election, in which he can demonize the other side, in this case, uh, the Kurds. But if I could uh, just add one one thing on that, if Erdogan's goal is to call early elections now, or if there's no government is formed since the last elections and he has to call early elections, he may be surprised. There's no reason to think that all this will hurt HDP and cause it to lose votes. Because remember, the majority of new votes that came to HDP came from Kurds. Kurds who had previously, for a variety of reasons, supported the AKP. In this situation, they're unlikely to change back to AKP. Well, that's a question that hangs in the air at the moment. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with me, David Eads. And this week we're looking at the Kurdish question. What chance an independent state for a community caught in the very heart of the struggles and the combat, not least with Islamic State? And a little bit later in the programme, we're going to pick up on the international perspective of that, not least what is Washington's position in this maelstrom and ultimately the denouement, if you like, what chance, what real chance of independence for the Kurdish community. We'll also take the opportunity to hear from another man, someone who's rallied to the Kurdish cause. His name is Mesa Gifford. Now, on the surface of it, a very unlikely candidate, a man working in finance, living in comfort in the city here in London, but he felt inspired to head out to Syria to fight with the Kurdish forces. In here is my bag, what I've been living out of for the past month. So I've got a look inside. Bixie. It's got uh, the same round as the sniper rifle. Uh, it's got very good range, actually, that's why I chose it. Um, and does a lot more damage than just my Clash alone, which is which I use as sort of a sidearm. Toothbrush, toothpaste, a couple of grenades as well. You're not allowed to bring very much, you have to travel incredibly light. This is a guerrilla army after all. Because of the threat of snipers, I can't. I don't really move around too much during the day, and it's only at night that's when the firefights typically kick off. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with me, David Eads. This week, we're asking a simple enough question: What chance of an independent Kurdish state? 
for a community straddling four countries in the Middle East, not to mention a diaspora across the globe. And we're joined by a former member of the Kurdistan Regional Government in northern Iraq, Talawa Ala al-Din. Eliza Marcus joins us from Washington. Eliza is the author of Blood and Belief, drawing on her close reporting on the Kurdish separatist PKK militant group in southeastern Turkey. Dr. Estra Ozyurek is Associate Professor in Contemporary Turkish Studies at the London School of Economics. Patrick Coburn is an international commentator for The Independent newspaper. He's been covering the Middle East for the past 35 years and just back from the region. Also with us, the BBC's expert analyst on Kurdish affairs, Güney Yildiz. Earlier in the programme, we wondered whether there is a single Kurdish identity for a community of some 40 million strong across the Middle East. We also reflected on Turkey's decision to launch airstrikes in Syria, some of them directed at Kurdish forces fighting IS, as well as reopening wounds with the Kurdish separatists within southeastern Turkey, the PKK. Now, though, I want to introduce you to another man, a man who's rallied to the Kurdish cause. Mesa Gifford was working in the city of London, in finance, but he felt inspired to head out to Syria to fight with the Kurdish forces there, the YPG, and he videoed his own experiences. Right, so here we are in northern Syria. Um, I thought I'd do a quick video on what it's like to be in Yepaga. Uh, when I say Yepaga, I mean YPG, which is the Kurdish People's Protection Units. We're currently in a Kurdish fort, uh, right on the front line. The Islamic State is only 400 metres away. It actually used to be a very smart farm. Uh, well, from day one, I suppose, that my journey to go out to Kurdistan to volunteer with the Kurds all started at my desk in London. I was um, in a very ordinary job, enjoying life. I had a girlfriend, uh, I had a flat, I was even looking forward to buying a house. And then all of a sudden, in in sort of summer last year, we heard about the sudden rise of the Islamic State. They took Mosul just in a, f a few days with just 300 men. They then grew out massively and started attacking all the different towns, Fallujah. Uh, they, they attacked the Sinjar Mountain and, and they drove all the Yazidis up there and they started starving. And I was desperate for something to happen, desperate for the British government or the American government to actually make a stand and, and, and to stop this from happening. But nothing happened. And I just, I waited and I watched and the killings kept going and uh, the Islamic State kept growing as well. And in the end, I decided, you know, I have to do something, show that I was in solidarity with the Kurds. Months before I went out, uh, a young man called Jordan Matson had gone. He was an American guy. And um, while he was out there, he got wounded on the front line. And while he was convalescing, he built this Lines of Rojava page, which was going to make, uh, expedite the process for other foreign volunteers to go out and join. Seeing videos, uh, interviews uh, through him, seeing why he joined, learning more about the Kurds, it really, that's what inspired me. Uh, my name is Jordan Matson. I'm from uh, Wisconsin in the United States, near the town of Chicago. I came here because for almost two years, ISIS grew while the major nations of the world did nothing, and I was sick of watching innocent people be genocided. Matson is among at least three other Americans fighting for the Kurds, and he says there are dozens of other Westerners who have also joined the fight. They have a Facebook page called The Lions of Rojava, with a mission of, quote, sending terrorists to hell and saving humanity, which is a tall order considering... Well, I mean, I knew from, from the very moment I decided to do this that I wasn't going to make a huge difference. I'm not naive. I didn't want to go and think I was going to be some sort of Lawrence or Mesa of Arabia or Lawrence of the Kurdistan, uh, whereby I just lead the Kurds to, to victory against ISIS. That's just not what I was interested in. For me, 
as, a, as someone who was never a soldier and uh, who'd never fought in a, in a foreign conflict before, I knew that by virtue of my nationality, and which is actually a shame here, that I could actually draw attention to the conflict. So I went with the understanding that I had to serve on the front line. I had to fight. I had to experience what they were experiencing uh, for solidarity purposes and to make me understand better exactly what was going on. But I also knew that when I was home, fighting on the front line was only half the battle. That the rest of the battle is actually educating people, telling people what's going on, who's fighting, why they're fighting, and what the future of Syria could look like. This might be too dangerous to film the enemy village because of snipers. Damn! Bloody mortars. Huge mortar just gone off. Where did that impact? In Rojava, you see the very best in people and you see the very worst. In the Islamic State, you see mankind, when it's lost, all shred of humanity. It's fascism at its very worst. And I, and I couldn't quite understand why people in the UK would turn to me and say, this is not your fight. You're a British man. Let's leave this to the Middle East. No, it's not. This is an international fight. In the YPG, you see young Muslim boys, Arab boys. You see Kurds and Kurds of, of all faith groups. There's Christians amongst them. Most of them are Sunni Muslims. And they're liberating Rojava, which again is is a multi-faith area. In fact, there's, there's nowhere in the world more multi-faith than, than the Middle East. To see those, that, those different communities coming together and liberating Rojava was just incredibly touching. My best friend was a young Muslim lad, uh, Kendall Kabani, who was killed. That's what this is about. This is about humanity. This is about people uniting together to fight against evil. And as long as the framework of democracy, as long as the institutions are put, put in place properly, those communities can, can work together for the future and, and, and Syria will have a very, very bright future. Well, that piece ending on a recording made by Mesa Giffords of his friend Heval Kendal Kabani playing his saz. That's a type of Kurdish guitar. Well, Kendal Kabani, as you heard in that interview, was killed in the fighting. He was just 20 years old. A month ago, a 23-year-old Australian, Rhys Harding, became the second Australian to die with those YPG forces in Syria, Yipagur, as uh, Mesa was calling them. And earlier this month, the US Defence Secretary Ashton Carter sat before the Senate Armed Service Committee to discuss the fight against the Islamic State. And one senator, Tim Kaine, praised the Kurdish YPG forces who over the last few weeks of June, helped, of course, by US airstrikes, had done so much to rout Islamic State fighters across what was effectively a third of the territory in their home province of Raqqa. But he also acknowledged that the success of the YPG was in itself problematic for the Americans and their allies. But every success has a challenge, and there's a worm in this apple, and the worm is this. As we have succeeded in our partnership with the Kurds in northern Syria, it's caused grave concern by the Turkish government. It's caused grave concern by a number of the other Sunni forces in Syria that we're partnering with. How do we continue to manage the Kurds to be successful in the battle against ISIL? without causing additional undue challenges in our effort to also help Sunnis be successful against ISIS. Much appreciated. Turkey uh, has a long common border with both Syria and Iraq, which has remained disturbingly permeable to foreign fighters and to resupply throughout the course of this conflict. We have some people actually talking to the Turks in order to try to get the Turks to up their game 
up their game. That's Ash Carter. Um, I want to turn to you, Patrick Coburn, if I can, off the back of what we've heard there. Senator Kane talking about the worm in the apple there. I mean, that is a reality for Kurdish communities across the piece, isn't it? That they may get gratitude today, but long term, they are simply low on the list of priorities. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, that the Americans take Turkey more seriously than the Kurds. I mean, it seems to me very hypocritical because the people who've been the most effective American partner on the ground against Islamic State, not just in uh, Syria, but also in Iraq, have been the uh, Syrian Kurds, the uh, YPG, which are the branch, the Syrian branch, effectively the Syrian branch of the PKK. The US has now decided that the uh, PKK in Turkey and in Kandil Mountains in northern Iraq are very bad terrorists, but the PYD remain and YPG remain good guys. To some extent, this is to the advantage of, of ISIS, of Islamic State, uh, because suddenly the people who've been their most uh, effective enemies... The airstrikes have been primarily been in Kandil. They've been far less against uh, Islamic State positions. And if you look at the uh, arrests in Turkey, there has been uh, many more arrests of uh, Kurdish activists not connected with the PKK and uh, dissidents on the left and others than they have of uh, Islamic State activists, certainly in the first few days of this roundup. So it seems to be primarily aimed at the Kurds. Yeah, Dalawa al-Din, I just wonder how you feel when you hear Ash Carter's response there, which is a sort of, you know, we're delighted that um, the Kurds are doing so much to help us, but shucks, that's probably as far as it goes. Again, I come back to realpolitik. Turkey has been and will remain to be priority and important, not just to US, but to Europe and, and to UK for that matter, this is a reality, regional power, member of NATO and uh, a big country that will that can make a big difference militarily and economically in the area. But the Kurds are coming up as currently non-state actors, uh, increasingly strong. They are emerging as powerful local partners uh, militarily, economically, uh, as well as politically. So we, we are mindful of the fact or we know that um, it's been a slow progress, but it is a definite one. And this mayhem at the moment, the the dismantling of the Middle East order is now creating a lot of opportunities. And now, interestingly, the vacuum that is now filled by radicals and terrorists and that is now growing out of uh, the control of uh, places like Turkey or the Arab world or the classical countries. Now, America increasingly needs the local actors to fight that war and get over the niceties of the past. And having good relation with Turkey is not mutually exclusive with having good relation with the Kurds. No, but, but isn't the message that you shouldn't think doing good things which happen to help the United States means there's a quid pro quo? Because it seems that the message very possibly is there isn't one. Basically, a complete rethink is needed. And America has realized in the last two or three years that their old strategy has not been working. The Kurds, uh, they will remain small. They will remain uh, secondary to uh, Turkey as far as the United States is concerned. But the reality on the ground, the fight against ISIS, which has become a priority for the United States, makes the Kurds most effective partners on the ground and the ones to talk to. And if anything, Turkey has managed to isolate itself the fact that they have been, that Turkey have been uh, given the free hand to head PKK, uh, in return, um, Turkey is allowing uh, use of airbase and perhaps some control over the ISIS movement or whatever. But I don't think the United States will, will find that this is enough 
or the war against ISIS would be won. So there's a lot more to come to this development than we've than what we've just seen. Yeah, Eliza uh, Dalawa there talks about ideally there should be a complete rethink on the situation in in the region. But uh, what, what is your sense as to Washington's view at the moment? Are we reading it right that really they they know where their bread's buttered? It's not buttered on a Kurdish side. Well, certainly the United States is is for for the United States Turkey is an is an incredibly important ally and having access to those bases is very critical to the fight against ISIS in Syria but I think there are two things that are important to remember one YPG isn't fighting against ISIS because it expects something from Washington it's very happy and it needs the air support it's been getting but the Kurds will continue their fight against ISIS regardless of of what Washington does and who Washington chooses to partner with at the same time, I think it is, I agree that it's time for the United States to develop a Kurdish policy. Instead of seeing the Kurds always within the lens of what Turkey wants, what Baghdad wants, what, what, what Syria, the Syrian opposition wants, Washington needs to look at the Kurds as actors with legitimate demands, with legitimate interests that happen at this point to really mirror Washington's interests and develop a policy like that and make clear to these states that this isn't a policy against those states. It's a policy with those states, too. Esra, what do you think is the, the, the Turkish view? Then, What do they want? Turkey definitely doesn't want an independent Kurdish state. Probably Turkey like to have a strong Syria and strong Iraq so that they control their Kurds, so that Turkey can control their own Kurds, so that there are no alliances. And they also want, they do not want it, but I think they benefit from Islamic State because their major concern is the Assad regime. So they want uh, the Islamic State to fight against the Assad regime, also helps them that they fight against the Kurds. So I have a feeling that they want to go to pre-2000s. Well, with Assyria we have at the moment, that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, this is, um, let's not pretend there are any easy answers here, but it is a massively chaotic uh, maelstrom in Syria, and that's not of any use to Turkey. But the Turkish government keeps seeing Assad as the biggest problem. But the uh, Kurdish mobilization in Turkey, there is no going back because really important alliances have been made between Kurds in the east and Turks and Kurds in the west. And there's a lot of energy in that movement. So many people also think about these recent attacks as a way to break that alliance Before, Kurds used to have their fight in isolation, but now, yeah, democratic forces from the East and the West are coming together. Well, we always talk about Turkey's contradictory policies uh, towards Kurds in different countries, being hostile to Kurds in Syria, having good relations with uh, Kurds of uh, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. But uh, there's also some contradictions in U.S. policy towards Kurds too, engaging in a kind of a strategic or uh, tactical partnership with Syrian Kurds against IS, coordinating uh, their airstrikes uh, with them. If you look at the map, you'll see uh, most of the airstrikes are conducted in uh, Kurdish areas in coordination with Syrian Kurds which are affiliated to the PKK, which is on the terror list of uh, of the United States. 
And uh, with regard to their policy uh, towards Syrian Kurds, uh, even uh, former General John Allen, uh, U.S. envoy to anti-IS coalition, recognized the fact that to to soothe relations with Turkey, said uh, we don't want an independent Kurdistan in uh, northern Syria. But uh, we don't see that demand being voiced by uh, Syrian Kurds or uh, Turkey's Kurds, as we have heard from Sarhado, the rapper, earlier. Uh, they, they're pursuing a different policy. It's not about the flag, he said, didn't he? Yes. Patrick, did you but, want to have a word on that? a more general point. You know, the, the whole area is getting more and more violent. I mean, if you go from the Pakistan border right through the Middle East to North Africa, there are seven wars going on. With this re- resumption of war in eastern uh, Turkey, that makes it eight wars. You know, and it's not a great period for minorities. The, the Kurds are a minority in all these places. And in all these conflicts, we see minorities uh, suffering. Uh, even the, in Syria, where the Kurds are doing well now, they're a minority. They're 10% of the population. So they're in danger in all these places. Yes, but there, there is one place where they have a foothold, and that's northern Iraq, isn't it? And I mean, it was, in fact, it was this time a year ago that Masoud Barsani was saying, right, time for a referendum. We want independence. OK, a, a week's a long time in politics. A year is an awful long time in, in war, Patrick. But I'm going to ask you to respond to what he had to say, in fact, precisely a year ago when he spoke to the BBC. I have said many times that independence is a natural right of the people of Kurdistan. All these developments reaffirm that. And from now on, we won't hide that the goal of Kurdistan is independence. Now, of course, conditions are right. In reality, Iraq is partitioned now. Should we stay in this tragic situation that Iraq is living? We can't go back to the previous situation. We can't experiment with our fate for another 10 years. We can't remain hostage to an unknown future indefinitely. That's the Barzani view. Patrick, it's inevitable, essentially. (laughs) But what happened immediately after that speech was that ISIS, Islamic State, attacked in uh, around Mosul and in Sinjar, was very successful. The Iraqi Peshmerga were defeated. There were moments when it seemed that Erbil itself, the uh, Kurdish capital in uh, KRG, might fall. What happened after no, that? No, sorry, let me finish. Let me finish. The, uh, they then asked for Kurdish, uh, for Turkish support. The Turks said, uh, wait, they weren't. They then asked for American Iranian support and got it. So militarily, that showed that uh, the KRG was weaker than anybody thought. So I think that those thoughts about independence probably peaked far less now than it was then. You you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I think it peaked at the time, but it's peaking again uh, since the Sanjar incident uh, in in August last year. There have been increasing engagement, uh, interaction and recognition by the international community with military support. Kurdistan is not any stronger, by the way. It's stronger slightly, but not so radically than last year. But the increasing international engagement and support, direct uh, traffic of uh, military and diplomatic um, uh, support have been really bringing back that confidence. Now, the say in Kurdistan of Iraq now is that independent Kurdistan is coming. It's a matter of time. It's not time now, but it is a matter of time. And it is not all entirely up to one country like Turkey to stop it or not. They can make life difficult. But if you look at Iraq, Iraq is dysfunctional, gone beyond the point of re emerging as a one integral country. Therefore, it is a matter of time there. In Syria, it's a failed Sorry, you say a matter of time. Let me just see if I can pinpoint you on that. What is your perspective for a matter of time? And we go back to 1920 and talk 
about a matter of time before Kurds get independence? Well, if I was going to bet on it, I would say in less than five years, because the way Iraq is, is, is going, the way Syria disintegrating, the way the dynamics are evolving, the way the ISIS and the terrorism are emerging, this area is, uh, is disintegrating. The onus is now on the Kurds to really strengthen their institutions, their nation building process, the rule of law, and unite their people behind them and then withstand these current threats. So the major drawback is internal, but externally, left alone, without the Kurds even breaking Iraq or anything, Iraq is on its way to irreversible breakage. So Turkey will find it in its, uh, its interest to deal with the Kurds and secure good trade and, uh, and influence there because they have already lost the rest of Iraq. So I think Turkey uh, needs to democratize its own country, win the Kurds of Turkey back, then uh, the Kurds in Iraq becoming independent is in Turkish interest and the Turkish politicians have realized that. So let's not be really misled by the current hype of uh, adrenaline. That's the realisation, Patrick, and within a five-year perspective. No, I don't think so for a moment. I think the, the question is, is much more serious, which is, isn't a question of independence, it's a question of survival. If you're in Erbil, I was there a few weeks ago, that uh, ISIS, Islamic State, is just down the road. There's a 600-mile common frontier with them. That border is rather porous. Uh, independence, they... Uh, KRG needs the Americans at the moment. They need their power. The Americans don't want independence. If for real independence, you've got to have indigenous strength and you've got to have foreign uh, recognition. KRG is not going to get that foreign recognition. That's pretty much what I said. And its indigenous strength is somewhat dubious after what happened last August. Right. It was interesting also, um, uh, Dalawa did say that the onus is on the Kurds to sort of basically get themselves match ready for this if it's going to happen. Eliza Marcus, yeah, I, I wondered if I could get, just sorry, get the Washington view on that. I mean, five years is a, I mean, that's a blink of an eye in, in historical terms. What, what is Washington's thinking, do you think, at this point? We can only take our cues really from what the KRG is saying. And it's true that President Barzani last year was very emphatic about a referendum, which was seen as a way, you know, the next step after that would be to somehow break off from the rest of Iraq. But I have to say, I agree with Patrick on this, that the real question is whether they can actually survive and truthfully, whether it would make sense right now to declare independence. Five years is a long time or a short time, depending how you look at, at the region. And it's too hard to say. But certainly, as has been said, they need to build up institutions they need to work with the other countries to get support because an independent Kurdistan without Turkish backing would be very difficult to survive. But mainly they need to strengthen their institutions and strengthen and, and continue to push push back against ISIS. Ezra Ozurek, what would Ankara say to five years' time from now? I feel like things have entered a very dangerous path right now by um, you know Ankara declaring that the peace process is over. Now, again, if Turkish army starts fighting with PKK, then what will happen? How will they be able to continue supporting their fight against the Islamic State and, uh, you know, building their institutions? But yeah, I feel like some steps have been taken, which will be very difficult to return to. So I see a quite dark picture. Gune, we can crystal ball gaze, can't we? Because that's to a certain extent what it's like at the moment. It's so chaotic in the region. But let's say independence comes to northern to Kurds in northern Iraq. Would that draw Kurds, do you think, from the diaspora? Do you think it would draw even from the region into 
uh, an independent Kurdistan? Because it's certainly the case that other parts of the region are looking for slightly different things, aren't they? Exactly. Half of the Kurds uh, are living in Turkey. And the the main movement in Turkey is the PKK. And they are not voicing a uh, a political demand for an independent Kurdistan. What they are demanding is a bit uh, complicated. But we can maybe analogically say uh, it's close to kind of a maximum uh, devolution of power to local communities uh, in the region. And we know that their uh, affiliated groups are the main groups in uh, Syria and also they're very powerful in uh, Iran too. So if, if you look at this political map, uh, we can say uh, the, the main political movement representing most of the Kurds do not voice a, in the demand for an independence. In, in Turkey, for example, more Kurds live in Istanbul than in uh, main Kurdish city uh, Diyarbakir. But there are other ideological reasons too. When you talk to like food soldiers of the PKK or their commanders or their supporters, you hear all the, the same words. We Kurds have suffered a lot from nation states and we don't see our the, the solution to our problems in a nation state uh, ourselves. But what they're implementing now is institutions that can take over from the state. So they have their own judiciary system or, or their own economy, but it's not a state. Okay, we're drawing to a close here. Um, Dalawa Ala Aldin, of course, you've served Sorry. as you served as a government minister. In any case, you brought up the question about the importance of getting ready, the onus on Kurds in northern Iraq to prepare themselves for independence, for government. Give us your honest assessment, if you can. Can they do that in the matter of three, four, five years? I think the answer is unlikely. Um, They are not going to uh, come up with a magic wand. They have failed to um, really invest so heavily in the in the things that we we've been asking for and that is the uh, rule of law control of corruption and institutionalization in strengthening the democratic institutions now all these things have been happening but very slowly painstakingly and we have a very free media that is creating great pressure the voters are now voting and and at times punishing the the politicians the international community support is coming in a way conditional on them doing the right thing the international business is dictating that they need rule of law so that they have their business secure so everything that is pointing to the right direction and the Kurdish administration is moving but very slowly that's our worry even now Kurdistan without the allies protection would not withstand any of those big threats well we obviously have to wait to see Patrick we're going to have to leave it there as one commentator said though the Kurds were born to be betrayed I wonder if anything is different as we look to the months and years ahead. But that is it for this week from News Hour Extra. I must thank all our guests, the BBC's Gunnar Yildiz and Dr Esra Ozurek, who are with me here in the studio, Patrick Coburn of The Independent Newspaper from our Canterbury studio, Eliza Marcus in Washington and Laura Ala Aldin in Nottingham. Thanks all very much indeed for your contributions. Now, if you'd like to listen to the programme again, or indeed any other from the archive, you can listen back at bbcworldservice.com. Just search for News Hour Extra. From me, David Eads, and the team, that is NewsHour Extra for this week. Thanks for listening.